Time Out with Manu Kakopian. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Time Out with Manu Kakopian. Today, we are joined by Bill Rempel, who is the biographer of Kirk Krikorian, uh, a book that was published last year called The Gambler. Uh, Bill is a 36-year veteran of the Los Angeles Times, both as a writer and an editor, produced a collection of high-profile projects there, triggered government investigations, exposed scandals, and prompted reforms of state courts in Nevada and consumer protection laws in California. He also had groundbreaking reports on Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, and uh, which were published right before the terrorist attacks in 9/11, uh, on 9-11. However, uh, for the last few years, Bill was uh, encapsulated by Kirk Krikorian, the obviously famous casino owner and one of the more private figures of, of the 20th century, someone who uh, reached billions in fortunes, yet uh, stayed away from the public profile. And uh, Bill is going to join us today and, and, and talk about um, his, his book. Uh, Bill, thanks a lot for taking the time. We appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Um, obviously, this was a book that uh, came to you uh kind of out of nowhere, because as soon as Kirk Krikorian died, uh, you started working on the project. How did, how did that come to be? Yeah, I, I, I didn't know Kirk Krikorian. Every, every Armenian in America knows him better than I knew at that time. But when he died, his, uh, his obituary ran in the New York Times, and an editor at HarperCollins, the publishing house, read that and uh, saw this story of a man who... Uh, who, who built Las Vegas, the modern Las Vegas, who, uh, who owned all the, if, all the car companies in the, uh, the big three at some t- time or another, who uh, was the richest man in Los Angeles in, in his day and uh, a billionaire of uh, multiple, multi-billionaire uh, who she'd never heard of. And she said, how can this be? I never heard of this man, which of course was Kirk's wish that he not be famous. He was the most anti-celebrity for himself, uh, anybody uh, in that stratus of, uh, of, of wealth. So he worked hard for his whole 98 years to, uh, to not be famous and succeeded. Anyway, the, the editor uh, uh, shared the obituary with me and asked if I would be willing to look into it. And the problem was, of course, his lack of, of uh, celebrity, uh, his will, to, his wish not to be famous, made him difficult to to um, to research. For an, for a biographer, it was, he was he was um, he didn't do interviews except very very rarely. His uh, his archives, he didn't publish his papers. Uh, he didn't look for publicity. He didn't have a publicist most of his life. Um, he was 98 when he died, so he outlived everybody, his family, his friends, his childhood buddies and all. So, um, and then to make matters a little more complicated, his, uh, the lawyers for his estate uh, served notice immediately to me that they were not going to cooperate with the, my research. But his story was such a, such a terrific tale, such a... Um, inspiring 
um, success story, and such an American story, that uh, I thought it was it was a story that deserved to be told. That that the country needed to needed to read, and and, and that that uh, he w- he would be an inspiration to uh, to entrepreneurs, to to Armenian kids, to every kid uh, who who grows up in a scrappy uh, place who, who who has to come from nowhere and fight their way up. And 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 Kirk learned all the uh, learned all the values of. Uh, um, the value, the values uh, that you, you that are instilled by virtue of, of living and doing and surviving, um, came into play and, and served him for ninety eight years. You know, I as a journalist myself, you know, anytime I go into a project, uh, have to bring out the essence of a subject. You know, it requires a lot of research. It requires for you to put your heart and soul into a project sometimes, and you know. I've never written a book, but I can imagine all the countless hours of time you just put to, to extracting information about a man that did not have much out there. Uh, take me through that process as to how you started and what are some of the channels you used and how you kind of dug up the life of someone who was so private. Well, fortunately for me and for history, um, a, pre- a previous L.A. Times reporter, uh, a fellow that was one of the old-timers when I started at the paper, uh, had done a book about Kirk from back in nineteen in the early 1970s when he was just emerging as a, uh, a, a, a major financial player in Los Angeles. And it was before he had even, well, it was in 1973. He was not a billionaire at that point. He was. He'd made his first fortune, but he had. Uh, he was risking it all again in Las Vegas uh, on, on investments, and so um, I started with that book, which was long out of print. I found a copy of it in the library at UCLA, and uh, and uh, devoured it. Um, but then I, I, what I what I looked for were people that knew him, people who were most who who um, who cared about him and, and would be willing to share. And and that's that was the most. It's always the most important part of research is finding people who can tell you more than what the records can show. And uh, and so that's that's where I started. And uh, it's also where I, I ran into the to the state's lawyers and um, and was told and you know that good luck, but we're not going to help you. Well, it turns out that a lot of people did help me. Uh, people that even the, the lawyers thought wouldn't. Um, they they so admired and respected Kirk and were so eager for the world to know what a great guy he was uh, and what a, a, a man of integrity he was that even in uh, even though they were being steered away from cooperating with me, they they made an exception. Who were some of the people you interviewed for the project specifically? Well, um, uh Terry Christensen was one of uh, Kirk's lawyers uh, for many years. Uh, a lawyer, not just a lawyer, a confidant, a friend, a uh, partner. But but he was he was Kirk called him my my marine because he essentially hired him right out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I mean the law firm that that represented Kirk then. Um, and uh, uh, there were um, his valet uh, and and cook, chef, and and overall right hand man uh, for for thirty some years. Um, Ron Falahi was 
was eager to talk about uh, Kirk's history because he he saw him every day. He he knew him as in a um, in in his personal life in his private life and. Uh, uh, we interviewed uh, my wife and I did some of the interviews together. Um, we, um, uh, we we is Kirk's uh, tennis coach. Tennis Kirk was such a competitive man. He was still playing tennis competitively in his eighties. He he was um, in the on the senior circuit. And his his uh, his coach Daryl Goldman was uh, was uh, had some insights into Kirk's competitive uh, uh, in, uh, streaks and his and determination and how focused he could be on something like a like tennis. And he was, uh, Kirk was a, an, a very um, um, athletic man. He was as fit as, and when he was in his 70s and 80s, uh, he was the envy of men 30, 40 years younger. So um, we, and, and he had, Kirk had, uh, had friends. Uh, uh, it was there were there were there were people who wanted who talked to me too who who didn't want it to ever be identified as having spoken to me because they were they uh, didn't want the publicity either and they were wanting to to um, protect Kirk. But Alex Shimanigian was uh, was one that uh, the, of Kirk's top people who who um, uh, top managers and uh, he he was a. Uh, he was very helpful in providing uh, insights into Kirk in uh, in his later years. So anyway, it was every everybody who was willing to 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 share stories uh, did it out of uh, respect for Kirk. It wasn't it wasn't like I mean I wasn't doing a uh, a hit job. I was trying to figure out how to explain a a a kid that grew up absolutely poverty stricken. Uh, could could in the in the lifetime he had become so wealthy, so popular, and so by and by being so private at the same time. Right, and, and I, the the gambler really dives into that and and talks about the the formative years of Kirk, how his father had the raisin farms in the Central <laughs> Valley, and 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 you know they built it, they lost it. You know, it kind of the I think that gambler gene was was he was kind of born with it too because his father really um, to to make a better life for their family here in in the United States had to take certain risks too. W what did your research yield as to Kirk's formative years and what he was like growing up in an Armenian household? Well, his father was a was an immigrant. Came over his his grandfather actually was an immigrant. Came over first, and then his uh, Kirk's dad came over uh, as a young man and started in the in the Central Valley of California. He um, and he accumulated property, uh, vineyards and orchards and such, uh, all over from uh, from distressed farmers and uh, and. Uh, in, in back in the in the teens and and twenties, um, but he was terribly um, over leveraged. A lot of it had, had loans for crops, loans for property, and he his father at one point uh, was very proud of the fact that uh, he had a million dollars worth of property. But the problem was he probably had twice that much in debt, and so when the recession the recession hit in the early twenties, wiped him out. And so Kirk at the age of five. Uh, experiences his family being evicted from the family farm, the last piece of property, 
in uh, up near Bak- Bakersfield, Weed Patch, and the family had to move to Los Angeles with nothing, where they again experienced evictions constantly. Just rotate. They would rent a house, live in it for a couple of months, be unable to keep up the rent, have to move again. So Kirk, Kirk grew up um, in a family without sufficient money to to get by always on the edge of, uh, they were on the edge of homelessness, except in those days, Armenians weren't going to be homeless. They were part of the community. And friends and family kept each other uh, uh, together. But it was still very difficult, and Kirk would change schools. He was always the new kid in school, which in those days was kind of a rough thing. In in, uh, in L.A., uh, he would have to, f- he would find himself in having to stand up to bullies and fight and um, and it hurt his skills in school, his his uh, grades. So so Kirk was um, Kirk. These are these are the the things that he learned to uh, um, to value family and friends and not things because things he didn't have things and he couldn't accumulate things. But he had loyalties and friendships. And that that scrappy mentality, I think, is also why he kind of leaned towards being a boxer oh yeah well it made him very competitive in all sorts of ways but the boxing came uh as a very young man his brother was a boxer uh but but kirk uh kirk actually became a, a, a amateur as his brother niche was did some professional boxing but kirk became a very talented uh boxer and and one of his most prized possessions was his boxing nickname after uh, about a second or third fight, he uh, he blasted the uh, the other guy in, in the first round with a with a right hook, a right jab out of nowhere, just floored the guy. And so the newspaper that was covering it then called him Rifle Right Kirkorian, and Kirk loved that probably more than any dollar he ever made. You know, it's the most ironic thing right now is that we're having this conversation. Um, I also moonlight as a boxing journalist, mm, yes. and and tomorrow I will be on an airplane headed to the MGM Grand to cover a boxing fight. Excellent. So the spirit of Kirk Kikorian will still lives. He he built that boxing arena at the MGM specifically because he wanted the uh, he wanted something that was specially made for boxing. Mm-hmm. And uh, over the it was over the objections of some of his uh, investment investment advisors. That uh, this was this was maybe an excess, but no, no, he wanted it, and in fact, goes back as a kid. His 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 first big dream, his first big ambition, as a as a as a boy, was that one day he would be on the marquee at Madison Square Garden fighting for a title of some kind of you know, mm-hmm. whatever his weight was. He was he was always a, a welterweight, I think. And I think one of my favorite parts of the book, and I think it goes into the first uh, few chapters, is you really talk about his days as a pilot and how he, once at, once the family moved to Southern California, they were able to kind of you know hit the ground running uh, after some after some hard times. But you know, Kirk finally transitioned his life into the Royal Air Force, where he faced these near death experiences flying uh, during World War Two. Yeah, well, where did that I, where did that passion for flying come well, from? Well, that's a good question. It, it, he was a boxer. He was an amateur boxer. He was very talented, and he was on track. And he actually ended up winning some some um, weight uh, championships on the Pacific Coast in in amateur. 
and he envisioned himself being coming like his brother of uh, a professional boxer and the job he got a job which was to um uh, was installing furnaces around san gabriel valley and uh, pasadena that area and uh and that that job was was a like 200 pound furnaces that he and his partner had to haul around and maneuver and put in so he was bulking up as best he could still seeking the uh um the boxing and and physical um uh, future when his partner on the on the uh, installation of furnaces turned out was taking flight lessons and he had tried to talk Kirk into coming along and flying flying on one of his lessons, and Kirk always at first d- declined uh, and ate his sandwiches for lunch instead of flying it for lunch. And one day he finally uh, agreed, and he flew along, got in the back seat with uh, when his partner, his buddy, was flying. They, they took off from a, an airfield in Alhambra, and... As soon as they were off the ground, Kirk was in love with a new thing, and it was flying. It was just an instant, uh, wow. Um, uh, and and his his um, uh, his brother, who suffered some some brain damage because of boxing, uh, that that Kirk's coach feared would happen to Kirk if he, because he was not very big. Um, uh, Kirk Kirk found he went a new way. Instead of going into boxing, he he had one last fight where he won a championship, and then he went he went serious about getting to fly. So he had in school he hadn't done very well in math. He didn't go to classes, um, and he stopped and he dropped out in the eighth grade. So he need needed math, uh, and be, math was something that that a pilot lives and dies by. Uh, so so Kirk and his and his uh, furnace installing buddy went to a night school in Glendale I think it was and and uh, took math classes so he could uh, then go go to a flight school and do do and he was and it turned out to be very gifted at navigation which is a math thing and uh, so that 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 uh, flight background just completely won him over and he ended up coming out of a flight school into uh, teaching just before World War II broke out. He was teaching flying to future Army air cadets uh, up in uh, King, uh, King City and uh, out in Blythe in California and then decided rather than go into the military himself, he would go to Canada and join the RAF as a contract pilot and he became a, pilot, a captain. He was so gifted as a, uh, as a, uh, both a flyer and a navigator that they made him a captain, and he had his own planes and his own crew right off the bat. And they were paying a thousand dollars a flight, but it was a thousand dollars and high risk because uh, the couple of thousand people that did this, five hundred of them just disappeared. For the most part, there were there were crashes where they recovered bodies, but the, most of the people flying were doing the nor- the polar route before there was uh, a navigational guidance system installed anywhere on the polar route. So planes would go off over the polar route to uh, flying from Canada to uh, to Scotland and England, and uh, ice up and fall out of the sky. There was no no trace of them ever. Um, 
they didn't leave messages because it was beyond radio contact. Anyway, this was the world he was lying in. It was highly dangerous, uh, risky, and that's that's one of the things his uh, up, difficult upbringing uh, taught him was to have a certain kind of comfort with risk, and he he showed that in flying, and he showed that in business in the years that came ahead, that came later. Yeah, and uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking about uh, Kirk's Kirk's life as a, as a pilot. You're listening to Time Out with Manu Kakopian. And welcome back, everybody. We are joined here today by Bill Rempel. He is the biographer of Kirk Krikorian, who wrote the book The Gambler, which was published in 2018. It's out in hardcover. It's out in paperback. Um, before we dive more into the success of the book and how how much of a, of a feedback you've gotten from not only the Armenian community, but people who are encapsulated by... Uh, and enthralled by Kirk's life and the figure that he was, let's continue the conversation we were talking about with uh, Kirk uh, during with his days as a pilot and and what that was like and how that kind of started his his passion and zeal in the aerospace industry. Kirk, of course, was a um, a daredevil of uh, of sorts. I mean, that was what got him into boxing for one thing, but his, in in aviation, he was a he was a, a skilled flyer, but he was also he loved the thrill of speed, and uh, and in um, once he was flying uh, for the for the RAF in the, uh, the ferry command, taking taking these planes over to the war front. Um, he loved to take he loved to fly something called the Mosquito, which was a fighter bomber, um, a light fighter bomber that um, uh, that was very responsive, very fast, and in fact. Uh, Kirk's competitive nature came to the front. He, he, he liked. He, he wanted to hold the record for how fast it could get over there, over to uh, to, to England. Um, problem was, this was a plane with a uh, with a uh, a range of for, with fuel of only about uh, I think it was about eight hundred miles, and it's you know it's a couple thousand miles uh, over to uh, UK. So. Um, the the route normally taken would would be to hop from Gander in eastern Canada up to uh, Greenland, over to Iceland, and then down to Scotland, making making stops along the way that were easy to get to without risking a fuel shortage. Well, the uh, in those days certainly uh, I don't know what climate change may have changed this, but there was a the they liked to the pilots uh, loved to get this tailwind that they called the Hurricane Express that could they could eliminate one of those stops and go straight out of Canada over to Scotland. And uh, so when that when that uh, jet stream, as we call it now, was operating, it was you know at 70, 80 mile an hour tailwind. It was it was a beauty, and it was. But the problem is, if it ever, it, it, there was nothing to say that it was going to always be there. And so you could, on one of Kirk's crossings, he uh, he got about halfway there, and the wind stopped. And he was, it was it was touch and go whether there would be enough fuel. So he starts, uh, they he and his uh, radio operators are throwing things out of the plane, whatever they could, any weight. He. Uh, 
Kirk cut back from trying to set a speed record to, to to cutting back to to conserve fuel, uh, and they got to um, to the to the uh, airport over um, uh, got a place over the airport and the coast of Scotland and it was socked in. It was uh, over overcast was uh, in fog on the ground level. So. Kirk's circling around trying to figure out where it is because they, they didn't have fancy radar and stuff to, to tell them exactly where they were. They, these, the, all these crossings were done by the stars, and so they you know, flew at night uh, for much of the flight, and then they flew visual. Um, so he's over, he's over the, the uh, airport, can't see it, and, he can't, and the overcast is so dense that he can't even risk landing, and he's about to run out of gas. So Kirk kicks open a trap door in the in the cockpit, and tells us he's gonna they're gonna bail out and just abandon the plane, and the and the radio operator was so was so distraught because he knew one you know five five minutes in the in the in this frigid cold North Atlantic uh, would be deadly they would not survive unless they happened to come down on the land in their in their parachutes so. He begged Kirk to make one try, and since, and so Kirk went down into the soup, and uh, uh, just obviously he survived. He broke through the through the clouds, just uh, just, and when they did, they were right over the airport, and the lights were on, and he 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 landed, and uh, and as he described it, he's he just they just sat on the end of the runway, and. While his his muscles were quivering from uh, from the stress and the adrenaline, f- and, uh, and of course he did, he, as I recall, he didn't have enough gas to get to the get back to the uh, to the hangar either. So it was, but those kinds of moments, as harrowing as they were, also seemed to inspire him. And uh, he he flew the mosquito more than any of the other pilots did because he loved the speed. And it was the most tricky because it would ice up the quickest. It was, uh, but it was typical Kirk, a man who's a man who was so quiet yet so sought the thrill all the time and lived the life of a gambler, like you said. How did that? How did his life once he, you know he was obviously making money. He he was saving. He came back to the Los Angeles where he continued his his life and his career. Take me through that part of his life and where he kind of started catching these breaks one after another well he came he came back uh, from the war with a nest egg because he was getting paid so well uh, you know maybe uh, something in the neighborhood of fifteen twenty thousand dollars which was a lot of money in 1945 um, it's not a bad thing now for that matter but uh, <laughs> uh, but but he used that money to buy a plane and uh, to set up a flight school and an airport in El Monte. Uh, no, in uh, Montebello. Big Armenian community there too. Yes, yes, and and Kirk was part of that uh, in those days. So, so, but he he wanted to get. He found he that was kind of a. It wasn't as much fun teaching people how to fly, especially in, in simulators and such. And he wanted to be flying. So he, he, uh, he parlayed that first flight school into a small charter air service. And, uh, and that, and on that, he had the advent, the adventure and of, uh, taking a, a, 
a customer named John Wayne, the actor, uh, out on a scene-searching, location-searching uh, trip where they flew all over uh, Arizona and New Mexico looking for uh, places to shoot a film. And so he was... He would. They were landing on the desert and uh, camping at night on the desert. So he he always loved the fact that he uh, had been camping with John Wayne. But that was these were in those days. He was building up uh, um, this this charter service, and one of the ways he he stocked his charter service or, or raised money to finance it was after the war. There were a lot of surplus airplanes in Hawaii. DC-3 type airplanes, I forgot the military uh, uh, designation. But but the problem with these planes is they were in Hawaii. They had gone over on boats. Uh, and now they had a flight, had a, again, a, a, a fuel range of 500 miles. And they were in Hawaii. So getting them back to mainland, mainland USA here, getting them back to California meant uh, crossing an uh, ocean of about 2,000 miles. And so he had to have uh, rigged them for uh, extra fuel tanks. So he had one of those, one of those uh, flights when he came coming back from Honolulu in his DC-3, or uh, t- twin engine. Um, his, uh, it, it, the, fuel, the engine stopped somewhere out in the middle of the Pacific. All the, engine, the engines just suddenly stopped. And um, it was because the one of the tanks had, had gone dry, but they had more, and he, they were able to get those get the other tanks um, um, rigged up quickly before they crashed into the sea. But it was alarming because it meant that they had less fuel than they thought, and so when they realized what what they had, they uh, again threw things out of the plane, anything that they didn't need. The only thing they saved was a yellow. Um, rubber raft that they might need if they had were forced down into the into the sea. So uh, the the radio man radioed an SOS that they were going down at the time, and uh, and then they got their thing going and, and uh, got the plane and engines going again, and they knew they were going to just barely make it based on his recalculation of the fuel. So. The thing is that this his the the SOS made news. The uh, Coast Guard uh, and the and the folks in San Francisco that received the SOS put it out to the to the uh, media, and it was on the radio in Los Angeles. These flyers in the, in the middle of the Pacific had just radioed SOS, and so Kirk's family heard about it, and so they were in, of course, all gathered to. Uh, to hope and pray and worry, <laughs> um, and uh, of course, it, it it as it turns out, of course, they landed safely, and it was uh, Kirk took the yellow raft as a souvenir of that flight, and and uh, it just happens that later the following summer, he took it down to San, Santa Monica to put it out and, and go out for a day in the in the, in the surf, and uh, when they st- when they opened it and popped it popped the uh, the the uh, valve to load the load the air it it was full of holes and it and it, and it, it blew up and then went wow. went limp so if he had gone in he would have gone in and gotten wet wow wow that's a uh, you know it, it kind of again another near death 
experience that you're talking about and it, and it remind and you mentioned John Wayne earlier and it remind me of the anecdote and story that you highlighted in the book is that right around that time he was making back and forth trips to Vegas as well too for the yes. high rollers and these were the people who would be going to you know Vegas was still in its very very nascent development stage and uh with with its ties to the mob and one of uh, Kirk's uh, Kirk's customers was Bugsy Siegel, who one night phoned Kirk from what I remember in yeah, the from yeah. what I remember in the story and uh, asked him to uh, fly him to Vegas, and he ends up he did. Uh, it was it was Bugsy's last flight. Um, yeah, Kirk Kirk took it. He, he did it instead of his partner because his partner volunteered. They, they both kind of flipped a coin. Only Kirk, yeah, I'll do it. And he took took Bugsy over, and Bugsy was uh, got out of the plane, went uh, went into a limousine that they went out and disappeared for about forty five minutes. And he came back and said, "And uh, take me home." So uh, Kirk was was puzzled about you know, you know it seems like a uh, a long way to go for a meeting uh, that had lasted thirty minutes or forty minutes in the car. But uh, the next day, the newspaper. The newspaper pages of the Herald Examiner were full of the front page, big spread on Bugsy gunned down in his, at the home of his girlfriend in Beverly Hills. So uh, uh, Kirk had nothing to do with any of that, of course, but it was such a uh, vivid and um, colorful thing. That that's the world of aviation in the 30s and 40s in, uh, in L.A., what what were those years like for Kirk, or not really years, but experiences going back and forth to Vegas? I, I know well, he I know he was a gambler by heart. Yes. What, what what were those back and forth trips well, he, like? Yeah, he loved he he loved gambling and and he loved Vegas and um, and this is before he ever invested a thing beyond beyond uh, you know, betting making a bet. Um, but he got to know um, uh, some of the police there he became a very good friend of ralph lamb who became the sheriff uh, for many years a big crime fighter mobster fighter uh uh became one of kirk's best friends and and in fact he used to ralph lamb used to uh, uh when he knew kirk was coming he would uh, he would start a little bonfire out where i-15 runs through town now but he it was just empty desert then and he'd light a little bonfire at one one end of uh, the the this open area, and he'd drive his his uh, uh, sheriff's car or metro car over to the other end and put turn the lights on and the bubble lights and the flashing light, and then Kirk would use that as a landing strip. He would land between the lights between the lights and the and the little bonfire. Uh, but that was you know it was it was different Vegas then. Do, do you know how he was doing gambling-wise back then? Well, he, he, as he said, nobody wins gambling. I mean, gamblers always die behind. But he won uh, enough to still love it. He loved the thrill of it. And the thrill of it was what he had as a pilot. The thrill of it is what he had as a gambler. Um, he loved the risk. And if you don't like the risk, you probably don't belong in the gambling world. But he, he, he told stories about once uh, he and a friend, he, he, one of his customers on the, on the charter service, they, they went gambling together, and uh, they were down to their last uh, five bucks. 
And they and the, and the partner said, well, this will get us breakfast. And Kirk said, oh, give me that. And he, I'm going to, that's not enough for a good breakfast anyway. So he went back in with $5 and to the, uh, um, I think it was, the, it was, it was the craps table in this case and came back with $800 about an hour later. So, <laughs> so sometimes your, 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 uh, wow. your, your luck changes. Well, but, but Kirk, you know, Kirk, Kirk sometimes couldn't lose. It just seemed like it. I remember that anecdote you wrote in the book where but mm. at this point, you know, he had already made his millions and you know, he had the boats and the yachts and there was that time when he was in the I believe the French Riviera yeah. when he had that uh, big role with the million dollar crap shot and he wa- he actually wanted to use as a, uh, he wanted to he lose. He was he was there to to uh, pay a tribute to a friend or uh, a fellow gambling casino owner says i'll come and it was customary to go lose a million dollars just because it was a friendly thing to do it's like a housewarming for a new casino so kirk and uh, and his friend went went to this guy and there this was near near con and kirk was there for the con film festival as a, an executive as the owner of mgm in those days and and so they went to this uh to the uh, this because new casino owned by the by the brothers uh, Low, uh, um, anyway, they, they it was a new casino and and Kirk he was planning. It said, "I'm going to go lose a million dollars," but the way he did it was he he went to the craps table. It's going to do it on one roll of the dice. And um, and 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 to do this, he knew he he had to ask permission of the of the new owners because uh, it was possible he'd win. So. And this greatly exceeded the the limits on what they would allow, the most most limits in a in a casino. So Kirk asked uh, this, uh, the the brother that was on duty that that day, and he said, "All right, you know, it was kind of a. It seemed to, as I heard the story, it was an, an it was not an enthusiastic uh, agreement, but it was." It, it was it was a, it was a, a a bet taken, so Kirk had got himself and got one a little orange uh, chip, special chip that for this role only was worth a million dollars, and uh, he went and watched the action at five different tables and then picked the one table he was going to go to, put the bet on and he did, and uh, one roll of the dice, and he won, so. He couldn't lose even when he tried. Is what I take from that. Yeah, we kind of fast forwarded there about him already throwing million dollar hands on the craps table. But um, I wanted to also find out how he made his first million. And you know, it's uh, we're talking about a man who lived ninety eight years and has made billions of dollars and has all these casinos and and projects. So there's only so much we can fit in one show. So. <laughs> Let's let's get continue next week with the conversation, and um, we'll pick it up from there. Sure, glad to. Thank you very much, Bill. You're welcome.